KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, dirty work and the people who do it. The low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. What does that have to do with the rest of us? A.L. Press will explain. His book, Dirty Work, is out now in paperback. Also, historian Eric Foner will comment on the ways Republicans have made the teaching of American history a key battleground in their culture war against Democrats in the upcoming elections, especially the history of the American Revolution. And we'll also have a new episode of Your Minnesota Moment. But first, we're still thinking about L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva ordering a raid on the home of Sheila Kuehl last Wednesday. Of course, she's one of the county supervisors who has called for his resignation. He says she's the target of an investigation of corruption in the award of contracts by the supervisors. But he says all kinds of things, many of which are not true. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's an indispensable columnist for the LA Times, covering, as he says, Southern California everything. He's also co-author of the book, A People's Guide to Orange County. We talked about it here. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Hola, John. First of all, how did you hear about that 7 a.m. raid last week? And what did you think about it? It, it was funny because I was actually uh, slacking with my colleague, Aline Chekmedian, who, of course, has been covering Sheriff Villanueva almost from the start. And we were we were talking about another story. And then she said, oh, sorry, I have to go cover. I'm, I'm at Sheila Kiel's house. And I'm like, what would she be doing at Sheila Kiel's house so early in the morning? Then I went on Twitter and I saw her li Aline's live tweets from there. And I'm like, oh, God, Alex, really? You're really so desperate to get elected, to get reelected, that you're going to do a, a, a play raid? <laughs> Did the sheriff's office tell Aline, your colleague, this was going to happen so she could show up there with photographers? That I don't know. I do not. I'm not Aline's editor. We I mean, it's funny because when you're a reporter and you're covering sometimes the same things, you don't really say everything or you're not you're not giving the ins and outs because we're just focused on the story. So we were and, and, and you know, and toward that it was Aline who told me as it was happening on Monday, hey, Alex Villanueva said you misquoted him, that you're lying because I hadn't written about Alex Villanueva for a couple of months. I actually was wondering, like, how am I going to get back into Villanueva because people are <laughs> bothering me or bugging me like, hey, you can't let him off. And I have other things to talk about. But then when Aline told me, yeah, you know, because she was seeing the debate that he had with uh, his, his opponent, Robert Luna. She was checking it out. She told me and I saw I'm like, OK, just like Al Pacino, uh, like uh, <laughs> Michael Corleone and the Godfather three. Just when I thought I was out, they pull he pulls me back in again. <laughs> well, uh, let's recall that the L.A. County Sheriff has more than 10,000 sworn deputies, 8,000 more employees. They police the biggest county in the country, 10 million people. They run the biggest jail system in the world. The sheriff, just a reminder here, is elected. In 2018, L.A. County elected its first Latino sheriff. He ran as a reformer, and then in office he betrayed his supporters. Now they are hoping he loses in November to his challenger, as you say, retired Long Beach Chief of Police Robert Luna. Your new column 
for the LA Times uh, deals with what should we say untruths told over the last few months by uh, our sheriff. Uh, and you open with Villanueva's sworn testimony when he was deposed by attorneys for the widow of Kobe Bryant, who was killed in that helicopter clash. Remind us briefly about that la- lawsuit and then tell us about the sheriff's testimony. Well, it's very telling of the regime of Sheriff Villanueva. So, of course, in January of 2020, there was a horrific helicopter crash in Ventura County that killed nine people, most famously Kobe Bryant, L.A. Lakers legend, and his daughter Gianna. And so shortly after... Uh, Aline and our colleague Paul Pringle, they broke the story that there were sheriff's deputies who were passing around grisly photos of the aftermath of the crash to bartenders and people in in a bar in Norwalk. And that completely disgusted everyone. Vanessa Bryant and, you know, the survivors of the deceased, they filed a lawsuit against L.A. County over that action. So Villanueva, of course, he kept changing his story, saying, well, you know, I, of course, don't condone this, but I told them to delete it, uh, these photos. And, of course, Aline and Paul and others caught him in in lies. So during one of the depositions, pretrial depositions, they asked uh, Villanueva what he thought about Aline. And this is his quote profoundly dishonest, never says anything right about me, always misquotes me. But then when pressed for any examples, he actually said, well, I never talked to her. I, you know, she tries to ask me questions, but I don't even pay attention to him. It's like, so then you can't offer any actual examples. And that's, and so I started with that anecdote before we moved on to his allegations against me that I made up these very controversial remarks he said about the black community back in March. Just to stick with Aileen for a minute, you you quote him saying in his sworn testimony, she, quote, attempted to engage me in conversation on multiple occasions, close quote. Uh, (laughs) Is that wrong? Is it wrong for a reporter to ask a sheriff? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like uh, Aileen was just doing her job as a reporter. And I think it's very telling that Villanueva does not talk to doesn't seem to like to talk to female reporters Uh, Uh, like he will talk to me and I am far more uh, like cutting or ruthless in my critiques of Villanueva than Lean because Aline's a reporter and I'm a columnist, so I'm allowed to. But yeah, it's like Villanueva does not understand what a media representative is supposed to do, which is ask questions whether we like you or not. You report on a public debate between Villanueva and his challenger, Robert Luna, on radio station KBLA 1580 last week. KBLA is the only Black-owned talk radio station in Southern California. It describes itself as, quote, unapologetically progressive and, quote, unapologetically geared towards African-Americans and other listeners of color. Its owner and its top hostess have a smiley. He's on every morning from 9 to 12. What was this event like? How was it organized? I understand there was an audience. Yeah, I was not there, and I only caught it after the fact. It was live streamed on uh, Facebook, and you could still see it on YouTube and, of course, aired on. But, yeah, there was it was an audience. It was an audience, since it is a Black-owned station. Presumably, the majority of the audience was Black. The moderators have a smiley. It was more like the host, and then there was three moderators, hosts at KBLA, and they were all Black. 
weekend. So the first hour, the way Tavis described it is like instead of them going at each other, he was going to have one hour for Robert Luna to say his bit and then Alex Villanueva to say his bit. So Alex was uh, on for the second hour. And, you know, of course, and Alex being Alex, there was a moment where he was talking about his supposed colorblind and not even colorblind, more like affirmative action that he had promoted all these deputies and lieutenants during his time as L.A. County Sheriff, whereas Robert Luna had only promoted one person, implying that Robert Luna was a racist. We're talking here about black higher officials yeah. and black officers of the of the sheriffs. Apparently, in this event, they debated a column of yours, that one from last <laughs> March that we talked about here. Yeah, one of the moderators asked Villanueva, you know, read back to him comments that he had made to me about how, according to Villanueva, Asian Americans were suffering an inordinate, inordinate record-breaking amount of hate crimes that, that supposedly black perpetrators were the overwhelming assailants. That's number one. And also this idea that the black community's worst enemy is not white supremacy, but itself. And so the moderator said, like, along with that and other off-the-cuff off the comments that you've made, I just really can't trust your your judgment and how you feel about the black community. And Villanueva, you know, and you see the video. He gets his trademark smirk. He turns it on. He's like, well, you know, one, you're quoting the L.A. Times. They're not exactly something like the arbiters of truthfulness. And the moderator, to uh, her credit, she said, well, no, the L.A. Times is a fact based paper. And Villanueva wanted to get into it. But then Tavis Smiley interjected and said, all right, Alex, like, let's just get down to it. Did you say what the L.A. Times column accused you of saying? And Alex Villanueva said, no, definitely not. That's li well, that's not exactly what he said. I don't have the transcript in front of me because transcripts don't lie. But that was the, ju the gist, the gist of what Villanueva said. So the sheriff told Tavis Smiley at a public event that you misquoted him. Very serious charge against a, uh, a journalist. What is the evidence here? <laughs> the funny thing, th and this was a series of columns in March that went all around Southern California. And that were never even meant to talk about the black community, by the way. I just wanted to focus on the Latino makeup of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, which is now over 50 percent Latino. And I wanted to ask him, what does it say about law enforcement in Los Angeles right now that you had that? And instead, he went on this wild six minute anti-black dog whistle tangent. And part. And so that's what made the news. And so the evidence that I have is the same evidence Alex has. We both recorded ourselves. It was like, you know, mano a mano, a Mexican standoff. <laughs> although he's Puerto Rican and we put our recording devices right there on the table. I recorded mine. He, I would assume recorded his, but he must've thrown his away. And by the way, I almost threw away my recording and my transcript thinking, I don't need this anymore. No, <laughs> I know the historian in you, John's like, no, do not do that. So I went back to my transcripts. Of course, the first time I did the story, my editors made sure and myself, of course, double, triple, quadruple check that everything, even the pauses, the ums, that everything was correct. So I did that again. And yeah, I did not misquote him. But then in reading my, you know, the, the transcript and listening to it, I forgot like, oh, yeah, there were some things I didn't include that were just as damning as what got the black community so upset at him. So, Alex, if you're going to accuse me of lying, well, not only did I not lie, you were even worse than I originally uh, painted you as. You want to tell us about any of those quotes? <laughs> well, I could say just read the column and all that. No, but there, there was one I remember where he again. This was supposed to be about Latinos and the LAPD. And the question that prompted all this, by the way, was I asked them, why does it seem 
that when it comes to uh, protests against police brutality and especially police killings of civilians, the black community seems to be more organized and more passionate about the issue than Latinos. So he goes off on all these tangents. So one of them was out of nowhere, he just starts talking about murder rates uh, vis-a-vis Latinos and blacks and saying, you know, Latinos make up about half of L.A. County's population, but only about. I think it was 40 percent of all murder cases or or, or all people in L.A. County jail, uh, you know, uh, charged with murder. Meanwhile, black men commit 31 percent of all murders, not talking about anything else, all murders, but only four percent of the population. And I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? And why? What is it about you that led you to be talking about these these rates? And by the way, uh, black folks in L.A. County make up nine percent of the population, not four percent. And then what was the other one? Oh, just talking about black students and how black students are the true, you know, tr- quote unquote, troublemaker. Black students are the biggest problem in public education right now, that they make the work environment intolerable for teachers and that uh, any you know defects in public education for the black community right now, it's mostly a self-inflicted wound. And I remember when that was happening the whole time, if you listen to the actual transcript, I don't know if I'll ever release it. I might. Who knows? But, uh, you know, but if you listen to it, you'll hear me like so astounded that I'm like, I got to keep letting him talk. So I keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I agreed (laughs) with him, but it's like, like, okay, you want to shoot yourself in the foot. Here's a gun. And uh, here is some bullets. Go for it, Alex. And that's exactly what he did. And. Remind us what the polls say about Villanueva's uh, support. So uh, a Berkeley L.A. Times uh, poll released in August showed that black voters are the ones most opposed to Villanueva. And by the way, Latinos are the uh, voters most in favor of Villanueva. He's losing on all demographics. But I mean, he knows that's why he was at the KBLA forum. He knows that he needs to get the black community they could be the swing vote that will go for him. But with comments like what he gave me back in March and the comments that I unearthed, that I, I put in my most recent columna, I, you're not going to get any votes or any more votes, Alex. And that's all on him. He cannot accuse me of lying. He could release if he wants to release audio, go for it. I have not cleaned it up or rather, you know, I have not made any snippets or anything like that. Like if you're going to accuse a reporter of lying. And by the way, he had all these months to accuse me of misquoting him. He defended his comments right after they came out. And now when he was in front of black voters, he was going to lie. So he basically mocked them twice the first time around and then in front of their faces. That poll, Villanueva's support, uh, this was a, what, a month ago, uh, LA County registered voters. Overall, he has 27% support in LA County. This huge amount of like something like 40% undecided at this point, but this is a really a terrible showing for an incumbent. I noticed one other thing before we let you go on. Uh, you, you quote him on Fox TV 11 here in LA, where he complained about you that you quote, couldn't find anything positive to say about him in those uh, columns you wrote. But didn't you say he wears cowboy hats? <laughs> well, I criticized him for that because his and this is actually what started the the beef, if you will, between me and Villanueva, because you will remember in 2021, summer 2021, he goes out to Venice, which wasn't his jurisdiction, by the way, in a cowboy hat going around looking at the homeless encampments. And I thought. I know what he's doing. He's doing another dog whistle for conservatives. Here's a sheriff, the Wild West, a strong lone voice in the wilderness against the evil liberals. And I didn't write anything then because then I found out that Villanueva wears a hat because he's a melanoma survivor. I'm like, okay, even I won't punch down to that. 
But when I finally uh, did write the column was when he told all of his deputies, you could wear uh, cowboy hats whenever you want, which historically you only wear cowboy hats if you're out like in Antelope Valley up in the high desert, you know, more uh, bonanza country. Not when you're patrolling the streets of South L.A. That's just a power move. So when I wrote it, I, I called it one of my lark columns. Sometimes I call as a columnist, you're like, you know what? You're just going to have fun with it. And I didn't think Villanueva was going to do anything of it. And he just blasted me. I'm like, all right, if you, you know, to use that old adage, like don't get into fights with someone who buys ink by the barrel or for the modern day that buys their memory by the terabyte. And here we are. It doesn't end. Gustavo Ariana's latest column for the LA Times is headlined, Transcripts Don't Lie, Sheriff Alex Villanueva Does. You can read it at latimes.com. Gracias, Gustavo. Gracias to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. For that, we turn to Al Press. He's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's also a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We reached him today in New York City. AL Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here. Well, the pandemic brought us to appreciate and to honor and cheer for essential workers, especially hospital staff, but also grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, the delivery men who bring us the stuff we've needed over the past year and a half. But you're concerned with an even more hidden class of workers who do jobs that you call morally troubling, people we'd rather not think about, and people who we certainly do not cheer for. Who are they? You're very right that, that the term essential jobs almost deserves air quotes in my subtitle because um, I'm not actually saying that or this, the just society that many of your listeners would, would like to have, these jobs would be around, but they are around. And I'm talking about the people who run America's prison system, the largest prison system in the world, um, as, as you're aware. I'm talking about people who carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program, or people who man the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. All of those jobs are essential to the American way of life or the prevailing social order. They are not essential in some immutable way that suggests, you know, this is how we would want the world to be. But I do contend in the book that just as we discovered during the pandemic, this sort of convenient arrangement where you had people who, in, from more privileged professions, white collar uh, professions, bankers, software engineers, who had the, the, the privilege to shelter in place as other people delivered their groceries to them, as other people got the, the goods out of the warehouses for them and, and took great risks. So we have a as well a moral division of labor. And it is not an equal division. It is a division whereby people with fewer choices and opportunities are generally delegated 
what I refer to as these, these sullying, degrading jobs. And we can talk more about the specific cases I look, I look into. You start uh, your new book, Dirty Work, with a tough case, prison guards. Ever since over-incarceration became an issue, we've blamed uh, the prison guards as a key force along with the police, pushing for more prisons, more prisoners, longer sentences, because the lobbying by their unions has been so effective. We record our show in California, which the state reached a kind of tipping point a couple of years ago when taxpayers started spending more money on prisons than on schools. We consider prison guards and their unions to be a really malevolent force in our state. But you suggest another way of looking at prison guards. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't deny any of what you just said. It's, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think one other, a, a different way to, um, to think about prison guards is as agents of a society that has built this prison system, not only to warehouse two million, more than two million of our fellow citizens in often extremely brutal and violent conditions, but also to effectively run our mental health system. Because jails and prisons in the United States, in in I think every state at this point, um, the largest mental health institution is not a public hospital. It is not a community health center. It is a jail or a prison. And actually, I begin the book by by looking at the mental health aides who work at a particularly violent prison in Florida, where the incarcerated people, uh, mentally ill people, are being horrifically abused. And this puts those mental health aides in a terrible dilemma, in a position whereby if they say something, if they report what's happening, they're liable to get in trouble and to uh, you know, have the guards retaliate against them. And they rely on these guards for their own security, to open doors for them and to be there in the rec yard. So if, if they challenge the guards, they're, they're risking something. If they don't challenge them, they're going along with human rights abuses. But in the next section, I do indeed complicate the story by looking at the guards themselves. Let's focus here, as you do at the beginning of your book, on the story of the death of one mentally ill man in this Florida prison named Darren Rainey. We know what happened to him only because of heroic action by a couple of whistleblowers on the prison staff who reported on the sadistic behavior of most of the other guards. And the story is truly horrifying, almost unbearable to read about. But you say these Sadistic guards are not to blame for the system, the inhumane system that they are part of. Right. So, and let me just correct one tiny thing that's very important, actually. None of the staff actually reported what happened to Rainey. It was another prisoner, a guy named Harold Hempstead, who reported it, who blew the whistle. And that tells you something about how the system, you know, constrains all of the people in it, including the very well-intentioned mental health aides I, I interviewed. But to, to turn to the guards, you know, I interviewed one guard in particular in depth. I, he shared his diaries with me. He, he, he spoke to me uh, very frankly about um, the brutality that guards in Florida do meet out. And he called these fellow officers, he called them serial bullies. He said, you know, some of these guys just beat inmates, beat prisoners, uh, you know, in, in a way that's just a kind of cruelty he'd never witnessed before. And this guy was a military veteran, as a lot of uh, uh, corrections officers are. Um, so here you're thinking, okay, the way you just described them as this malevolent force is, is exactly accurate. But he went on to say, you know, 
the people of Florida get what they pay for when, when you talk about what goes on in their prison, in the prisons. You know, why do these abuses happen? Well, you could, you could attribute it to character flaws, but you could also look at the fact that Florida spends, uh, it has the third largest prison system in the country. And at the time that I was writing and these abuses were occurring, it spent the second least on mental health services in the country. So what do you have? You have a jail and prison system that is overcrowded. It is often filled with people with severe mental health problems who are cycling through. And Bill Curtis, the guard I interviewed, like a lot of the guards, get no training to deal with this particular population. And indeed, if you asked a psychiatrist or asked a psychologist, you know, where would you least want to take a person in the throes of a mental health crisis, they would likely say, you know, a jail or a prison. And yet that's what happens. And so surprise, surprise, you combine a lack of rehabilitative services, a lack of health services, overcrowded conditions, and by the way, a pared down staff, thanks to then Governor Rick Scott, who of course today is Senator Scott, um, who cut the prison budget significantly. And as Curtis said to me, you know, when you're an officer in that, condi- in that in those situations, you learn there's only one way to control the place. And that way is through brute force. And this is sort of the message that society sends, but it's all done and hidden. It's all, it's all sort of veiled from, from scrutiny, not seen. And then when a scandal like the Rainey case erupts, people say, oh, look at those sadistic guards. Well, I'm saying in the book, don't look just at those guards. Look at the, society, the social conditions that gave rise to this system and the shared responsibility that all of us have. But let's be clear, the primary victims of this kind of dirty work, in your view, are not the people who do it. The primary victims are the people they're brutalizing. But you are concerned about what you call the moral and emotional wounds that dirty workers sustain, hidden injuries, they've been called in a famous uh, book from from their work. Uh, Tell us a little more about that. You know, a major theme of my book is is the concept of moral injury, the idea that um, if you are doing a job that requires you to meet out violence or that requires you to um, survey villagers through uh, drones that at any moment could leave innocent civilians dead. um, And you see that, but the society that put you there doesn't, that those jobs carry a psychic toll that is very hard, I think almost impossible to capture in statistics but that is very important in measuring a worker's sense of self-esteem, the degradation they experience, the lack of dignity. You know, Biden said when he accepted the Democratic nomination, he was telling a story about his father. And he said, you know, uh, his father told him, uh, you know, Joey, a a job isn't just uh, a paycheck. It's also a source of dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. Those are the themes I'm looking at and asking, you know, if you're the, the, the prison guards I spoke to, uh, by and large, were people who wanted to do something else. They took a, what, what is called a job of last resort, and they took it maybe because it had benefit. In Florida, the pay is very low, but it does have benefits. So as one of the, one of the guards told me, you know, it was either a little higher salary and no benefits or this job with benefits. But with all of the, and I would say moral costs that go along with it. And, and you're very right that I by no means am saying they're the primary victims. Just as in, in the section of the book on drones, I make it clear that the primary victims of an errand drone strike are innocent civilians, are, are, are people like those killed in the strike as the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. But there is a second 
secondary set of victims, I think, that, that in a way are both perpetrators and victims, and, and that is these dirty workers. And there's a special case in the prisons, which is prison guards who are people of color. Many of the prisoners, of course, are people of color, and there are also guards who are people of color. And a lot of people's first response would be, well, how can they brutalize their own people? This is another question you've looked into. I interview a black officer, a black uh, security guard, who on one hand told me about the racism of his fellow officers and about being stopped on the way to work uh, and pulled over repeatedly. And even when he had his badge ready to show the cop, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an officer too. It didn't matter. He was just viewed as, as uh, a black man who was a suspect in, in the officer's eyes. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, you know, it's, it's quite striking during the era of mass incarceration, states like Florida and, and in other parts of the country, the proportion of the prison workforce, um, the correctional workforce that is black and or Latino um, increased significantly as did, by the way, the, the percentage of the, of the workforce that is female. And in the particular prison I'm looking at, Dade, a, a lot of the workforce, the, the frontline guards, were female Black officers who were working and, and, and often coming from the same neighborhoods that some of the incarcerated people came from, very depressed, very um, few opportunities for jobs. And, you know, again, this doesn't in any way take away from the, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that there, the violence happens and, and, and folks should be held accountable, but it suggests that um, the powerful and the privileged have found a very convenient way to delegate this work to people lower on the social ladder than themselves, and not only to delegate the work, but, but in a way to, to keep both the workers and the work itself invisible. And there's another set of hard-to-see uh, workers that I'm very interested in that you write about, the slaughterhouse workers, who are some of the most degraded, oppressed, and hard-to-find uh, workers in our society. The slaughterhouses have been moved out to remote uh, rural areas specifically to get them away from the big cities where they were uh, more visible. I remember that there was a time when this was a more honorable job. From the 40s to the 60s, slaughterhouse workers had a strong Progressive Union, the United Packing House Workers, which fought for and won a national contract, which gave them not only high wages and safe working conditions, but this was also a union that was famous for its fight for racial integration of their workplace and social justice in the nation. They, they got blacks appointed shop stewards. They supported the March on Washington. Then in the early 70s, this union was broken. The union workers were fired. The line was speeded up. The slaughterhouses were moved to remote areas and undocumented immigrants were brought in and exploited mercilessly. But this history suggests it wasn't always like that. And, and that in turn suggests it doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've done a great job of sketching the history there that, that, that sort of starts with, you know, from Upton Sinclair, I trace it myself, to, you know, some of the brutalities he wrote about. And very interestingly, if you go back and read The Jungle, you'll see all kinds of passages where he's talking about not just the injuries that the workers suffer, but the feeling of degradation, the dirtiness. You know, they, he you, he, there's a passage in the book where he talks about you can't even find a place to wash your hands. You know, and that's not just about getting, it's, it's about this sense of being stigmatized, right? You just, 
you're in there killing you with the blood and the, and the gore of this. But as you say, the, 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 there was a very strong union movement that didn't necessarily make the job any less bloody, but certainly did make it less dangerous, certainly did make it less degrading, uh, certainly made it better paying. That fell apart in the 70s through a very concerted corporate strategy led by a company then called IBP. And they started importing strike breakers from Mexico, basically, in, in Nebraska and in other places. And that low-wage strategy took over the industry and is, is especially apparent in the, the sector I look at, which is poultry slaughterhouses. So I know your purpose in this book is not to propose new legislation that will uh, solve this problem, but it does raise the question, especially with prison guards, how much of this is necessary? Of course, there's been a movement led by Angela Davis to abolish prisons so that no one is subject to this kind of brutality again. The question really is how much of this, the dirty work you write about really is necessary? And if so, does it have to be that dirty? I hope there's a conversation on, on all, about all the forms of work I write about can be opened up. You know, I also write about uh, dirty tech and, and you know, the, the gadgets that we all use ha- has a form of dirty work that, that has just been um, outsourced and, and taken offshore, namely the mining that goes on for cobalt in the Congo uh, with child labor and brutal conditions and all kinds of middlemen, uh, these companies that sell from one to another, and that eventually makes its way to Apple and Microsoft and all the companies that we all patronize and patronize. And, and I, I should say, you know, that, that's the point of the book. I'm trying to, to connect this dirty work to our lives to show how, in fact, we rely on it, whether we see it or not. And so then that begs a question, well, what can you do about it? And my conclusion is, and I suggest very strongly, you can't do that much about it as an individual consumer. I mean, yeah, you could you could stop eating meat. You could decide not to buy these gadgets, but someone else will keep buying them. And you know, there are there are plenty of customers um, lining up. Uh, the fast food chains will continue to profit. So the only real solutions are political, and I would say are collective. Just as as the responsibility for dirty work is shared, so too any any way of altering this work has to be a sort of shared endeavor, a collective enterprise. We together share the responsibility for the harm done by dirty workers and for the emotional injuries they suffer, and we together can change what we require of them. The book is Dirty Work. The author is A.L. Press. A.L., thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. A.L. Press's book is out now in paperback. We spoke with him in September 2021. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Republicans have made the teaching of American history a key battleground in their culture war against Democrats in the upcoming elections, especially the history of the American Revolution. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. 
He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board, and where he wrote recently about the book Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Eric, welcome back. Yes, nice to talk to you, John. Well, historians for years tried hard to get beyond the academy and reach the public with their work, and now they have, but not in the way they had hoped. Uh, what exactly are the Republicans doing to make American history a political issue, and why exactly has the revolution, 1776 and all that, become such a big deal for them? Yeah, it is kind of mysterious. Uh, now, it's not the only time that there have been public controversy, very heated controversy over the teaching of history. Uh, you and I both remember back in the 90s, the so-called history wars where Gary Nash, a uh, UCLA professor, had pioneered producing a new set of standards for teaching of history, which were denounced by Lynn Cheney and other conservatives as not patriotic enough. Too much emphasis on the negative, slavery, things like that. Who wants to hear about that? Yeah, it's too boring, too, too depressing. We want to hear about how great everything is in America and always was. So that went on for a good, you know, several years. There was, I, I was sort of involved in it. And very, I debated Lynn Cheney on the radio once, and it was a total disaster. <laughs> okay, I mean, in terms of intellectual content, because yeah. all she did was yell and interrupt me. And so I decided I'd do the same thing. But anyway, the point is, uh, what's going on now comes from a number of sources, but something called critical race theory. States are actually passing laws banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. If you ask the members of the legislature, well, what is this? They always say, well, I don't exactly know, but it's bad. It has to do with race. That's pretty clear, critical race theory. And Republicans are sort of latched on this idea that white students are being told they're guilty because of slavery and they have to feel bad and shameful about the fact that there was slavery in this country. Or another way of attacking it, in fact, in Florida, I think the law they've passed says that they must teach that America is an exceptional country. Uh, American exceptionalism is now a kind of public orthodoxy. Exceptional in what way or ways? Uh, that is up to the teacher. I mean, in my U.S. history textbook, I do say we are an exceptional country. We have more gun uh, murders than any other country in the world. We have a much weaker uh, social safety net than any advanced country in the world. There are many ways that we are exceptional. Now you're making me depressed. <laughs> I know. Nobody is to be told they're guilty or shameful because of that. But anyway, what's really, you know, they're using this to as part of the general backlash, which has occurred, well, since the civil rights movement, but reinvigorated by the presidency of Obama. And also, by the way, many historians are emphasizing the centrality of slavery in American history, not to make students feel guilty. There isn't a single student in a public room, in a public classroom, who actually own slaves nowadays, right, in the United <laughs> States. So they, look, they have nothing to feel guilty about. That's something that uh, past generations did. But uh, it's important to learn this history to understand the racial turmoil that the country has gone through in the last few years, especially after the murder of George Floyd. But they, Republicans have found this is a winning issue in a weird sort of way. 
Uh, and uh, so they're going to continue to um, badger schools and teachers about what they ought to be saying about American history. And it's not just a fight over local school boards. Uh, Donald Trump himself, as I recall, towards the end of his presidency, got involved in this too. Well, he uh, uh, put together something called the 1776 Commission, uh, which issued a little report about American history, complaining, again, that teachers were not teaching American history in a celebratory manner anymore. And um, yeah, Trump thought this was a way to get some votes. Uh, The 1776 Commission, mostly composed of conservative academics, issued a little report, very brief, of 30 pages or so, again, about how great the Constitution is, how great the Declaration of Independence is, and everything good since then just flows out of those founding documents. You know, what's really at stake here is a number of more substantive questions, such as, well, how much should we be locked into the vision of the founders of the country? I mean, the courts debate that all the time in terms of original intent and everything. How should we understand the relationship of slavery to the American Revolution, to the early republic? How do we deal with the fact that so many of our revered you know, public figures, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, you name them, were slave owners, even when they spoke about the universality of liberty and things like that. Those are important questions to be discussed in a classroom with a competent teacher that can really enlighten students about the complexities of history. I don't think Trump was interested in the complexities of history, though. No, it seems like Trump's 1776 commission and the other Republicans who are on this bandwagon think that if you teach about 1776 and the American Revolution, then you will get a patriotic, optimistic, celebratory history of American freedom. But historians have for a long time taught that 1776 was a lot more complicated than that. Well, Woody Holton's book, uh, which you mentioned, Liberty is Sweet, certainly takes that view. This is not a great celebration of the founding fathers. In fact, very few of the founders come out looking particularly good. George Washington, well, Woody doesn't have much respect for Washington as a military strategist. Uh, He wanted to just storm British lines with his troops and in a heroic way, which luckily his other generals told him would be suicide. Uh, and he eventually didn't do that. He was a major land speculator, says Woody, the gold standard of speculators, and um, you know was in the revolution not just for uh, ideological uh, purposes, but to make some money. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, obviously, we don't need to say, was a major slave owner. Uh, so uh, it's it's complicated. That any good history is complicated. Uh, but what what's interesting about Woody Holton's book, I think, and what's admirable about it is that it tries to create a coherent account here. Both well-known people, famous founders, they're in there, but also ordinary men and women, Native Americans, African Americans, all sorts of people in the society and how they affected the coming of the revolution, the making of a new republic uh, in the 1780s, in other words, it's, he's a greatly expanded the cast of characters uh, who ought to be considered when you're trying to paint a portrait of a country going through a major uh, revolution. So the question here is not just how did Americans achieve independence from Britain, 
but who should rule a new and independent country in, in North America? And the most fascinating part to me of this new way of telling the story, relatively new, is that the Revolutionary War did not unite Americans. Uh, it exacerbated all kinds of tensions and conflicts. So, and that yeah, it was it was a civil war within the American colonies, as well as a struggle for independence from Great Britain. I think where Halton really does blaze a new path is by really trying to integrate, for, let's say, Native Americans, their role in the revolution. You know, a lot of Native American soldiers fought on both sides. Uh, in the revolution, but they, you know, they were fighting mainly to maintain their control of of the land, their ancestral land, which was constantly being overrun by white settlers. And the revolution was a disaster for Native Americans because the removal of their British allies just opened the door to massive uh, intrusions on their lands once the new independent United States, you know, was founded. And you emphasize in your piece for the nation that Native Americans were also, in a way, a crucial cause of the Civil War because of a disagreement between the British Empire and the colonists about them. Yeah, the, the so-called proclamation of 1763, which the British issued after the what we call the French and Indian Wars here, which led to the expulsion of the French from North America. What happened was the British said, look, it's too damned expensive to have fighting going on all, uh, all along the frontier, as has been happening, as white settlers move on to Indian land. There's constant battles. British troops have to go there to just keep the combatants apart. It costs too much money. Let's get the colonists to pay for some of this. We're going to pass a stamp act. That sounds like a good idea. Let's, nobody can object to that. And we'll have a stamp act and we'll raise money. But that's the point. This was one of the key steps on the road to revolution, the resistance of the Stamp Act. But the motive for that, that law was to raise money to station British troops on the frontier, not to take away the liberties of Americans, but to prevent American colonists and Native Americans from always being at war with each other. So, yeah, there you have a case where Native American tenacity and holding on to their own lands is a significant cause of the growing breach between the American colonists and the British. The most controversial part of the new histories of the revolution is the argument made in the 1619 project launched by the New York Times now a couple of years ago, that protecting slavery was a significant motivation for many American patriots, especially in colonies where the slave plantation was the foundation of the economy. Now, we've known for a long time that slaves fled by the thousands to areas the British controlled. What else do we need to know about this? What new evidence does Woody Holton have about the role of slavery? In well, the it's causes? interesting. It's interesting what Woody does because he does believe that this, you know, Lord Dunmore, the British governor of Virginia in 1775, issued this order welcoming runaway slaves into the British army. In other words, if they got to his forces in Virginia, he'd free them and make them soldiers. The white colonists were pretty annoyed about this, to say the least. It was 
an invitation to thousands of slaves to, to run away to British lines, which eventually many of them did. In fact, Jefferson condemns this in the Declaration of Independence as just show how low the British were, you know, in their efforts to suppress American independence. What's interesting to me as a scholar who has read a lot of Woody's work is that actually he had written about this previously, but he sort of exalted the British as defenders of black liberty. Now he is a plague on all your houses. The American colonists certainly wanted to keep their slaves, but the British were not acting in during the revolution and offering freedom to slaves. They were not doing that because of humanitarian motivations. It was simply to weaken the labor available, you know, the amount of labor available to the other side. And he shows the British were just as unscrupulous in dealing with runaway slaves as the Americans, that some of them welcomed Lord Cornwallis, welcomed blacks behind their lines and then kicked them out eventually. And they were recaptured when they became a burden to his army. And so, again, it, it doesn't seem like anyone is very heroic in Woody Holton's uh, account of the revolution. British leaders, American leaders, the Native Americans, I say, do not gain very much. Many blacks do gain their freedom through the revolution, uh, but it's not because of the revolutionaries, it's because they managed to run away and many British commanders did recognize their freedom. Overall, the balance sheet of people gaining and losing liberty as a result of the revolution uh, is on the negative side, really, in this book. Yeah, could you tell us a little more about that? That's kind of a startling fact for those who want to celebrate the American Revolution, that the achievement of freedom from Britain affected the different groups in the colonies differently. And for many of them, this was not really an expansion of their own freedom. Yeah, well, uh, Holton, go at the very end of the book, gives you a little uh, balance sheet of uh, who benefited and who didn't benefit from uh, American independence. He feels that a lot of ordinary white farmers did not benefit. They were saddled with debt. They were The 1780s was a period of economic downturn in the American nation. There were those like in Shays' Rebellion who actually refused to pay their taxes or close down courts so that they wouldn't be foreclosed by uh, merchants or others who would loan them money. The, and also Holton sees the Constitution as a conservative document meant to keep popular ferment in check, under control, with a stronger central government so that efforts by uh, ordinary farmers to uh, improve their condition faced a federal government not very sympathetic to that. But then you get others, of course. Women didn't gain very much, although some participated in the struggle for independence. Ultimately, they didn't gain very much from American independence. As I said, Native Americans, a disaster. They suffered the worst because they, they were now just, you know, there was no alternative power like the British to help them against the westward spread of the American uh, population, the free American population. And then you have blacks. He's, more blacks probably benefited than uh, others, but still the fact is there were more slaves in the United States in 1790 than there had been in 1776. And finally, I want to ask about the title of Woody Holton's book, Liberty is Sweet. Seems like this is something that 
right-wing school boards would love to make the center of the American history curriculum. Liberty is sweet. Where does that come from? Is that Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> it sounds very good. Uh, it is very good. And liberty is sweet. And uh, all sorts of groups were trying to gain liberty as they saw it in the revolution. But this is from a letter by one of George Washington's cousins, Lund Washington. And it was not about Americans sacrificing to gain freedom from the yoke of British tyranny. That's not what this little quote is about. Lund Washington wrote a letter to George saying, you know, you better watch out because once this, if a war begins, your slaves are going to start running away. You're not going to be able to keep control of your slaves. They've heard the talk of liberty. They know that liberty is sweet and they're going to make every effort they can to actually uh, gain liberty for themselves, even though it means running away from the father of our country, uh, George, George Washington. So it's an ironic title for Woody Holton's book in that it is really commenting on the role of slavery in the revolution rather than the hero heroism of the American colonists who struck for independence. The point here is that you can develop a congratulatory, celebratory account of the revolution if you want to do it. But to do it, you've got to look at the revolution the way Holton does, and particularly look at how people who were not intended to do this seized upon the idea of liberty for their own purposes. And the African-American slaves are the major uh, example of this. Unlike the, the founding fathers, the slaves believed that freedom was for everybody, not just for white people, for everybody. They took the idea of liberty and expanded it to, to at least as an aspiration, to include everybody in this, uh, in this nation. And in that sense, the slaves are the and their descendants are the inheritors of the ideals of the revolution, the ideal of freedom as a universal entitlement, rather than something just for white Americans. That's what we ought to be teaching in every classroom. And that should make people proud of the American Revolution. Eric Foner, he wrote about the many American revolutions in a review of Woody Holton's new book, Liberty is Sweet. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eric. Uh, very nice to talk to you as usual, John. We have an update since that segment was recorded in May. Attempts to ban books from school libraries and classrooms in America uh, are reaching historic highs according to two new studies released last weekend by the American Library Association and Pen America. Both reported on the number of books being targeted for removal. The association's report documents 681 attempts to ban or restrict access to a total of 1,651 different books in the first eight months of 2022. Books were banned in school districts in 32 different states. More than 5,000 schools nationally have had books banned from their libraries or classrooms, according to the report compiled by PEN America. Most of the books that have been banned are simply feature people who identify as LGBTQ. Number two on the list of targets of book bans are books discussing race and the racist past of the United States. 
Book bans have been a part of America's education wars for a long time, but the Penn report suggests they are now driven less by the complaints of individual parents and more by organized political groups and by overt pressure from right-wing politicians. Texas led the way with book bans. Florida and Pennsylvania came in second and third. The push to ban certain books has prompted backlash in some states. Uh, shortly after a Texas lawmaker called for the state's school libraries to consider a list of 850 books for possible removal, a group of school librarians created an online campaign to fight the bans and deluged state politicians with tweets and emails over the issue. In Wisconsin, a school district's decision to ban a book about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II provoked a furious response from local teachers as well as parents and students who organized protest rallies over the move. So there's book banning, and then there's pushback against book banning in America this year. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy who has spent more than $25 million of his own money promoting election denial conspiracy theories, was on his way home from duck hunting in Iowa and stopped at the Hardee's fast food restaurant in Mankato when three cars surrounded his vehicle. Four FBI agents emerged, showed him a warrant, and took his cell phone. The FBI is investigating a Colorado official accused of allowing an unauthorized person to break into the county's election system to search for evidence that would validate Trump's election conspiracies. Lindell denies that he was the guy. Lindell has a net worth of about $50 million. My pillow, he says, lost $80 million in sales after retailers pulled his products off the shelves over his election lies. He estimated that he has spent half a million dollars on lawyers representing him in lawsuits related to his false claims, mostly the $1.3 billion lawsuit brought against him by voting machine company Dominion Voting Systems. He complained in talking to the press about the FBI raid that Dominion Voting Systems is trying to destroy his pillow company. He also complained that Fox News has stopped reporting on his lies about Trump winning the 2020 election. Fox is also being sued by Dominion for $1.6 billion. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. it for today's living in the usa our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez thanks as always to rye cooter for our theme music mambo sinuendo living in the usa is recorded and produced at our blythe avenue studios in los angeles if you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows you can listen online anytime you want at living in the I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.